Okay, let's pray and ask God to meet us in the word this morning. Oh, Lord, I just love this church family. Love what you're doing with the church plant downtown. Love the earnestness and worship here. Love the, just the love in the community that's here. Thank you. We want to be a church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with you, Jesus Christ, being the cornerstone. It's why we preach. It's why we read your word. And so, Lord, would this morning, would you let this morning be a morning where we are built all the more solidly on the foundation of your word. Help me. You know how much I need your help. Grant it by your mercy. We all need your help. We know that warfare takes place when we open up your word to hear preaching. Satan does not want us to hear. Give us attentiveness. Bring your power, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, I want to start off this morning just kind of having you think about a question I hope you think about sometimes, and that is why do you believe in the God of the Bible? Why? Do you have, do you have reasons? Have you ever faced such a difficult trial that you said, now, okay, now why do I believe this again, right? Why do you believe in the God of the Bible? Richard Dawkins is a well-known atheist. You know, he's written the best-selling book, uh, The God Delusion. And he says that the only reason you believe in the God of the Bible is because that's your background, family or Christian country. And he would say that you have no more reason to believe in the God of the Bible than somebody would have to believe in what he calls the flying spaghetti monster. Now, I want you to hear hear this from his own words so that you can get a feel of what he's talking about here. So can we roll a, a video clip? Let's do that. This is probably going to be the most simplest one for you to answer, but what if you're wrong? Well, what if I'm wrong? I mean, anybody could be wrong. We could all be wrong about the flying spaghetti monster and the pink unicorn and the flying teapot. Um, you happen to have been brought up, I would presume, in the Christian faith. You know what it's like not to believe in a particular faith because you're not a Muslim, you're not a Hindu. Why aren't you a Hindu? Because you happen to have been brought up in America, not in India. If you'd been brought up in, Indo in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were brought up in, in um, Denmark in the time of the Vikings, you'd be believing in Wotan and Thor. If you were brought up in, in classical Greece, you'd be believing in, in Zeus. If you were brought up in Central Africa, you'd be believing in the great juju up the mountain. I mean, there's no particular reason to pick on the Judeo-Christian God in which by the sheerest accident you happen to have been brought up and, and ask me the question, what if I'm wrong? What if you're wrong about the great juju at the bottom of the sea? Did you catch that? There's no reason for believing in the God of the Bible any more than there's reason for believing in what these are the, the pink teapot and the flying spaghetti monster. And so I want you to think about that this morning. Is he right? Is the only reason that you would be a Christian because you're raised in a Christian family or a Christian country? Is there really no more reason than for believing in the God of the Bible than for some, you know, flying spaghetti monster? To answer that, 
I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 45. God answers that. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand, because I want you all to be able to go through this text verse by verse with us this morning and see what God says, how God would answer that question. Throughout the Bible, God says repeatedly that he wants everyone to know that he exists and who he is. Throughout the Bible, he states this again and again and again. He wants everyone to know, and he says that he works in history, in public, verifiable ways, so that everyone can see that he is God, that the God that is is the God of Abraham, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is no other God. And one of those places where he says this is right here in Isaiah chapter 45. So here... What God wants to proclaim to us through Isaiah is how every single person can know that the God of the Bible is God. That's what he's saying here. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Isaiah 45. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, he's talking to Cyrus, I'll give you more of those details in a second. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me. Here's why. That people may know from the rising of the sun, that's the east, and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So here God says that he is going to do something so that everyone from the east to the west will know that there is a God that the God of Abraham, the father of Jesus, is God, and that only this God is God. So, what does God do? Now, to understand what God does, we've got to do a little history stuff here. Oh, good job. Thanks, man. Hey, Colin, doing a great job back here, okay? What was going on at the time that God spoke these words through Isaiah? This is 700 B.C. Here's what was going on. Okay, first of all, He writes these words around 700 B.C. At that time, Israel is living in Palestine. Assyria is the dominant world power. Babylon is small and insignificant. Persia is relatively unknown, and there's no one on the earth named Cyrus, at least not the one that we're talking about here. That's what's going on at the time that God has Isaiah write these words. But now look at what God says he's going to do in the future. Starting in chapter 44, verse 24. This starts actually in the previous chapter. What is God going to do? Chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, speaking to Israel, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs, miracles, so-called miracles of liars, and makes fools of diviners, people who, other people who tell the future, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant, namely Isaiah, and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, the other prophets, who says of Jerusalem, here's what he's going to do, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. So Jerusalem is going to be ruins. But God's going to build and inhabit her. Who says to the deep, be dry, dry up your rivers, probably just a reference to the Red Sea parting. Who says of Cyrus, names this man Cyrus by name, he is my shepherd, 
He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem. So Cyrus will say of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Keep going into chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So God's going to move through Cyrus to dominate the known world. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. You can stop there. Let's skip down to verse 13. I have stirred him up, him, Cyrus. This is God speaking. I've stirred Cyrus up in my righteousness. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Because here's what God says he will do in the future. Okay? Mostly from this passage, but also from other passages in Isaiah and some from Jeremiah. So God says, Babylon is going to become the dominant power, first of all. Israel then will be conquered by Babylon and taken as captives to Babylon, where they will be in exile. Then Cyrus will become the leader of the Persian kingdom, and Cyrus will advance the Persian kingdom, so it becomes the Persian empire, conquering the whole known world, And then Cyrus is going to send Israel, those in exile, back to the promised land. Not only that, he's going to help rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Whoa! So, what happens? Got a third column coming up here? Close? All right, there it is. Here's what happens. Got some dates up here now in history. Remember, this was all being written in 700 B.C. So in the future... Here's what happened. 626 BC, Babylon became the dominant power. Assyria was the dominant power when these words are written. Babylon became the dominant power. 606 BC, Israel was conquered and taken in exile to Babylon, just as God had said. 600 BC, Cyrus became the ruler of the Persian Empire. 538 BC, Cyrus conquers Babylon... And at 536 B.C., Cyrus decides to send Israel, the exiled Israelites, back to the promised land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. Now, to see this last point, turn to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is page 389 in the Bibles we just passed out. Ezra chapter 1. I want you to see how dramatic this is. Ezra 1, 1 through 3. Page 389 in the Bibles we just passed out. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, okay? Got your Old Testament books memorized? Keep working on that. Ezra chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, because Jeremiah prophesied this exact same event as well, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
whoever is among you of all his people, all these exiled Israelites, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. Now, one of the reasons this is so dramatic is that in Jeremiah, God says, Israel will be in Babylon for how many years? 70 years. How many years did it take for Cyrus to make this proclamation? 70 years. Boom, nailed it. So everything happened exactly as God had prophesied it 150 years before. Now, you may have heard in your religious studies class or on you know, some Nova or some TV station, some, some talk show, that while this writ- looks like it was written in 700 BC, Isaiah 45, really it was written after all these events happened, and the author just made it sound like it was prophecy. Okay? All right. One reason we know that is because it's not what it says, but let me give you some corroborating evidence. This is astonishing to discover. Josephus was a Jewish historian, lived around the time of Christ, okay? Late first century, a little later. Late first century. He wrote this book called The Jewish Antiquities. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Jewish Antiquities. And in his book, he tells the history of Israel, and he talks about Cyrus. And he talks about how Cyrus read this passage from Isaiah, was blown away that God named me? God is the one who gave me the empires of the world? And that he was so struck by that when he read that he's going to send Israel back, he said, I'm going to send Israel back, and I'm going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Now think about it, just do your math. If Cyrus read Isaiah at this time, it couldn't have been written after Isaiah lived. Are you you awake? Did, Did you catch that? If he's reading a book at the time, then it's not going to be written later, right? It was written before he read it. That's usually what happens with books, okay? If I'm reading this book now, this isn't going to be written tomorrow. This was written before now, okay? Are we clear on that point? Call Starbucks. We need some help really quick here. I can tell. Oh, yeah, that's not going to be enough, Allie. Okay, anyway, all right. So this was not written after these events happened, just as it reads, just as Isaiah is describing, God is telling Isaiah in 700 BC what he's going to do in the future. And it happens. Point by point by point by point. Now, why is it so significant? It's because to prophesy all these things and to have all these things happen would require having a perfect knowledge of the future and perfect control of the future. No human being has perfect knowledge or control of the future. So who wrote these words or who spoke these words? The one who says that he's speaking these words. The one who has perfect knowledge of the future and control of the future. It's God. And why did God do this? Okay, look again at verses 5 and 6, right there. Back to Isaiah 44, verses 5 and 6. I want you to feel this. God wants everyone to see clearly who he is, which is why he does this. So verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord. There is no other. 
Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, knowing that Cyrus was going to read this, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So God did something that only God could do so that everybody would know there's a God. God is the God of Abraham, the father of Jesus, and there is no other God. That's what God has done. What has the flying spaghetti monster done? Nothing. So with all due respect, Richard Dawkins is wrong, thinking that we have no reason to believe what we believe other than how we were raised. God, all through the scriptures, gives reason after reason after reason because God wants everyone to know who he is. So when you find that you are in the midst of a trial and it's all dark and you start to wonder, why do I believe these things again? You know, those times like this morning in worship when you're sensing God's presence and and like we talked about last week, God's pouring his Holy Spirit out upon you and you're sensing his love firsthand. That's the best, best reason we've got, right? Like Aaron Henson shared in home group this last week. It just comes down to once I was blind and now I see. Okay, that's the best reason we've got. That reason is not always there. For me, or for you, right? There's times where you're not feeling it. Then, why do you believe? God gives us these reasons that don't change when you feel different. Rock solid. And of course, the most powerful reason that God has given us along these lines is the coming of Jesus Christ. God coming to the earth in the person of Jesus, right? Just can't leave this one out. This is the, as as powerful as this is, Jesus just like, boom! God walks the face of the earth. God is healing the sick and casting out demons and turning water into wine, multiplying loaves and fish and raising Lazarus from the dead. And then he's on the cross as a display of God's wrath poured out upon him and of God's love for us and of Jesus Christ, the son of God's love for us and the resurrection from the dead because God wants everyone to know. That's why we believe. Okay, now, do you get that? So next time it's dark, you can turn to the verifiable, historic, publicly accessible reasons that God's given us in his word, in history, and you can ground your faith in that way. Mm, So thankful that he's done this. Okay, but now, God isn't just interested that we have this kind of intellectual, okay, yeah, we believe that there's a God. What Isaiah goes on to do and what God speaks to Israel and the rest of this passage is how this knowledge of God will transform you, especially when it comes to trials you're facing, okay? Because there's two truths that God especially wants to highlight from the way that God fulfilled this prophecy, two crucial truths about God, which, which God wants Isaiah to use to encourage Israel when she reads these verses, when she's in the exile in Babylon. One truth is that God is sovereign. Look at verse 7, Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God is God. He is sovereign over everything. The idea of Light, darkness, well-being, calamity, that's a Hebrew idiom way of saying, I do everything. 
everything that happens. Ultimately, I am behind. I'm the one who's doing everything ultimately that happens. So God raised up Babylon to be the dominant power. And God had Israel conquered by Babylon and taken into exile. And God raised up Cyrus to be the leader of the Persian kingdom. And God worked through Cyrus to be have Persia become the dominant world power. And God stirred Cyrus's heart to want to send Israel back with money to rebuild the temple in the city. God did it. God did it. God did it. God ultimately does everything. But God's sovereignty means... In addition to that, it also means that God, as creator, has the right to do everything that he does. He's created this. He has the right to do it. He created you, he created me, and he rightfully can do with us whatever he chooses to do as God. There's another crucial truth, though, that you want to bring right up alongside this, and that is that God is good. God is good. Everything God does for his people, everything God does for those who have bent the knee before him and trust his holy son, Jesus, everything God does is good. It's good. Everything. Look at verse 8. That's the point of verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down Righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Righteousness, God's, God's saving works. Salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So not only does God have the sovereign right to do in our lives whatever he chooses to do, for those who name the name of Christ, who trust Jesus Christ, everything he does in his sovereignty will be ultimately for good. And, and Isaiah wants to take those two truths, God's sovereignty and God's goodness, and he wants to use them to encourage Israel as she's in the exile period. And I want to use them this morning to help us with our trials. Here's why. It's kind of like ever since we've embarked on this church planting venture, the number of difficulties that have occurred in the lives of Mercy Hill people has like quadrupled the crises the difficulties i mean janitor is saying another one there's another one here's another one here's another one and it's no surprise invading enemy territory right you when you attack no general is going to be surprised if there's a counterattack. all right so lots of us are going through major difficulties right now and i'm sure that some of you are that i don't even know about And so as Isaiah uses these two truths of God's sovereignty and God's goodness to help Israel weather the storm of the exile, I want to use these two trials to help us here at Mercy Hill weather the trials that you're going through right now. Okay? And here's how Isaiah does this. He pinpoints two temptations that we face whenever we go through trials. Okay? And one of them, the first one he deals with, is the temptation to complain. And he deals with that in verses 9 through 12. And here's what he says, verses 9 through 12. He comes down to this. Don't complain. Submit to God's sovereignty. How many of you are tempted to complain when you're going through trial? Okay, that's like my number one list of things to do when I'm going through a trial, okay? That's where I usually am tempted to start. But look at what he says in verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Him who formed him, that's God. So woe to him who strives with God, him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. 
does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Does clay say that to the potter? No. See, the potter has the right to make from the clay whatever he chooses to make. It's his clay. He has the right to create it, form it, handles, no handles, spout, no spout. He has the authority to do that. You are clay. God is the potter. He made you. He is why you are here. He has the right and the authority, the sovereign authority to make and form you whatever he chooses to make and form you to be. We've got to really let this just settle in on us. And so if we complain angrily against God, it shows a terrible reversal of roles. As if we are over God and can judge and question what he's doing. Terrible reversal of roles. Now, there is a place when you're in the thick of a trial to ask God, Father, why are you doing this? What's your purpose here? Help me. I'm weak. I'm struggling. I'm discouraged. Help me. That's not complaining. Did you all hear me? That's not complaining. That's humble, earnest, help me. I'm having a very hard time here. I I pray that often. That's not complaining. Complaining is when we angrily say, why is that driver going so slow? Or, why is God doing this? Or, this shouldn't be happening. It's the anger and the presumption like, I've got some rights here, God. You're you're not noticing my rights here. You're clay. God's the potter. And there's more to say. We're going to talk about how everything God does for his people is good. We're going to talk about that. But first, we've got to have this foundation that God has the right to do with my life whatever he chooses to do. You know I got some bad news from the eye doctor a few weeks ago. I have no idea what's going to happen. The specialist is coming up in like six weeks. It's forever, taking forever. I don't know what's going to take place. But listen, church, I want you to hear me say this. God has the right to do with my eyesight whatever he wants to do. I can say that easier now because I'm not worried about it because there's too many things I'm worried about, okay? That's coming, all right? But I hope I would say the same thing if I come back to you with bad news in a few weeks. Again, I don't want to be all dramatic. It's probably nothing, but I thought about it, okay? But he has the right. He made me. He created Steve Fuller, and whatever he does in his free sovereignty will be to bring me great good. But that's the next point. I've got to stay here. Okay, his sovereignty. So that's what complaining is. It's when we angrily protest against God. And it's wrong because we're making ourselves the creatures over the creator. And that's not right. So instead of complaining, here's what we need to do. We need to humbly submit ourselves to God's sovereignty. And here's where the cross becomes beautiful. Because when I'm angry, which I get angry at times, I should come before the Lord and I can come to him just as I am and say, I'm sorry. I'm angry now. Shouldn't be. It's it's sin. Forgive me. Help me. Change me. And Jesus' death paid for my complaining. And Jesus' death can break the power of my complaining. And when you come to him humbly and say, help me, he will forgive you and free you from your complaining and he will change your heart. And you come and you say, God, you have the right to do with my life whatever you choose to do. So help me now. 
That's the foundation. And I guarantee you, if you will, in your trials, take some time just to own up to the fact that God is sovereign and you humbly submit yourself to him and you say, you have the right to do with me whatever you choose to do, profound change will happen in your heart. Powerful change will take place. Many of you have experienced that. And I have. But I want to tell you this story about a woman named Mara. I read this story 10 years ago. I don't think I've ever mentioned it here, but it's, it struck me. I remembered it this week as I was thinking about this. I thought, I need to tell him the story of Mara. Mara was depressed. She's a believer, loved the Lord, and terribly depressed for 15 years. The way she described it was that she felt constant sadness, hopelessness, and loneliness. And she was angry with God that she was so depressed. Try as she might, nothing changed, just angry with God. She couldn't see anything of God's goodness anywhere. She was just angry at God about this. But then something happened which started to change everything in her. Depression. Now, a little caveat here. I'm a little bit nervous about telling you this story because I don't want you to hear from this that this is what God always does with people that are depressed or that there's some quick fix for depression. Okay? Or that... so. Understand what I'm saying here. This is what God did for her, and God doesn't always work the same way with everybody. But whenever you're in a trial, if you will take this step, you will experience transformation. May not be this exact same way, but this is what happened. She said that everything started to change when she submitted to God's sovereign will. Here's how she describes it. She says, Once I got to the place where I said, Okay, God, If this is your will for my life, I bow to your will. Then my focus and orientation changed. Most of my adult life, I had focused on getting out of the depression. But now I said, okay, if you're calling me to live with this, then I will. And here's what she goes on to say. Shortly after I made that decision to bow to God's will for my life, regardless of whether or not that meant depression, I became more convinced of God's goodness, and I had the strongest sense of God's presence that I had since I first became a Christian. Everything started to change when she humbly submitted to God's will. So church, I want to call you to that. When you're in the midst of a trial... Don't hold it against God. Don't think you're the potter, he's the clay. You're the clay, he's the potter. And humbly submit to God's sovereignty. Now, that does not mean that you can't pray that your trial will change. You can and you should pray that your trial changes, right? You can and you should. And you pray that built on the foundation of not my will, but yours be done. So, humbly Submit to God's sovereignty, his will for you. Okay, then, that's one temptation we can face is complaining. Second temptation we can face is despair. Verses 13 through 19. What Isaiah is saying here is don't despair, trust God's goodness. Okay, when you're in the thick of a trial, it's really easy to despair. Why? Because everything looks like bad, right? Everything is bad. There's nothing good coming out of this. This is just bad. It's going to be bad tomorrow and then worse the next day and then worse. It's, just, it's all just bad. And when you look at everything and you see it as bad, there's despair. That's how Israel could have felt in the exile, right? 
And that's what some of you are feeling in the midst of the trial you're going through right now. But look at what God says in verse 17. The reason we need not despair is not only because God is sovereign, he's also good. Verse 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Okay, so Israel was in exile. But great good, eternal salvation. God put her into exile as part of the plan to move her into great salvation. So every trial you are in, if you name the name of Christ, if you're trusting Jesus Christ, listen, every trial you are in has been allowed, brought to you, sovereignly in God's wisdom, as a potter has been shaped to bring you great good. That's why God brought it. Great good is coming to you through that trial. Great good is coming, like with Israel, delivered from the exile, back to the, you know, powerfully transformed spiritually through the exile, brought back to the promised land, rebuilt. Great good is coming, Israel, through the exile. And no matter how bleak things look for you in the trial that you're facing, great good is coming from it. Great good is coming from it. In fact, so great that the day is coming, I guarantee you, when you will stand before Jesus Christ and thank Him for every second of whatever trial you go through, any time in your life. Because at that point, you'll see the good that's there. Now, you're believing that the good's there. You think, well, like, what kind of good could come out of this trial? We don't know all the answers. But we know one. We know the most important one. He's told us the most important good that comes out of every trial, whether it's 15 years of depression. By the way, those of you who struggle with depression... Find encouragement reading about the life of William Cooper. Because he fought to trust Jesus all through his life. I hope you find this encouraging. Maybe, maybe you won't. It's just reality though. So He never experienced much deliverance. But God met him time and time and time and time and time again. He's written so many hymns. Mm. The point is now William Cooper is before the Lord thanking him because God gave him grace to press in, to trust, to press in, to trust. God met him time and time and time and time again with strength and with grace and with peace. Never total victory though. Deliverance now though. Deliverance now though. So if you're in the thick of a trial, don't despair. Trust God's goodness. We don't know all the good that's going to come out of it, but you know the most important one. I didn't say what that was, did I? (laughs) What's the most important good that comes out of every trial? Lots of ways to put it. More nearness with God. More of Him. He's the prize. And He's the infinite good. If you haven't tasted that, when you come to trust Christ, you will, and you'll know. You'll know what the Scripture's saying. You'll know what many people here would attest to. He is the greatest good. That's why you will stand and thank the Lord for every second of every trial you've experienced because of the great good of God's nearness that you experienced in it and through it. Any questions about that or about sovereignty? Sovereignty or goodness? I like to just sometimes open up for some questions just because like, wow, but or did you really say that? And yeah. 
Well, let's, yeah, let's pray for Richard Dawkins. Let's pray for Richard Dawkins. Man, I sent chills up and down my spine hearing his answer to her, thinking God's listening to this. Pray for Richard Dawkins. That deserves you know, a long sermon. Um, the verse that I use is Genesis fifty twenty. So helpful. I'm so thankful. The first book in the Bible raises and I think answers that question. Genesis fifty twenty. Jot the reference down. Here's what's going on. Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. Let me put it differently. Joseph's brothers had sinned and sold Joseph into slavery. So we're talking about sin here. And at the end of, you know, this, remember they're all restored and they see Joseph and Joseph's now number two man in Egypt and amazing things that God did. And Genesis 50, 20, God says this to the brothers. You meant evil against me. And they did. They'd sinned. But his next line is astonishing. He says, but God meant it. The evil. God meant the evil for good. To bring about this present result. So I think Genesis 50-20 just speaks really clearly. And it raises all kinds of other questions. The whole sovereignty responsibility question. Many questions come back to that. But the, the scripture's answer to your question, which is an excellent question, is God is in sovereign control of evil and of sin. He means it for good. That's why it's not sin for God to do. The brothers freely chose. They're responsible for it. God teaches that too. So... That's that's a short answer, but that that's the answer. That's really, I mean, we could talk about it. But that's, I'm just gonna keep saying the same thing because that's really what it comes down to. It's just, and that's all I know. Okay, that's about as far as my knowledge goes. Okay, so does that help? You're being so kind. Okay, thank you. <laughs> if you have other questions, email me or or ask somebody else. <laughs> uh, I just want to want to close up with an illustration that I thought of this week. Um, you know, I love Jonathan Edwards, one of the most powerful preachers and writers in, in church history, I think. He lived in, in, in America, 1730s was when he did a lot of his writing. When he was 55 years old, uh, smallpox vaccinations were just starting to be tried and were having great benefit. So it's kind of the, the buzz. And so he thought it'd be wise to get vaccinated for smallpox. And so he was vaccinated for smallpox. And tragically, the doctor giving him the vaccination gave him too much. And he was stricken with a very severe case of smallpox, fever, his throat swelled up, and he died. So think about his wife, Sarah, and what a dark trial this would have been for her, and how she could have complained or despaired. But she didn't. She submitted herself to God's sovereignty and trusted in God's goodness. And the reason we know that is because of a letter that she wrote to her daughter. Here's what she says. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Every word of that sentence is full meaning. A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness. God's made me adore God's goodness that we had him, my husband, so long. 
but my God lives. And he has my heart. Ah, oh, I love that. He lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. And there I am, given to God, there I am, and love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. So church, don't complain. Humble yourself before God's sovereignty. And don't despair. Trust in God's goodness. Let's stand together. Lots of needs in this room this morning, Father. Some I know of, most I don't. All you know of. All you care about. Would you come now? Start something now. Continue it this afternoon. Bring heart change to those who feel anger and complaining that they could humble themselves before your sovereignty and just surrender and trust you. And then, Lord, those who are in despair, break in upon them. Enable them to trust your goodness. That no matter what the trial, the main reason you've purposefully allowed it into their lives is to bring them some great good that they would not have had otherwise, that you want to give them because you're a good God. So I pray, Lord, for your power to come right now upon everyone here who is in need, in trial, in difficulty. Thank you that we can rest in your sovereignty, that the world is not out of control, that nothing happens outside of your sovereignty. And that can bring us great rest. And thank you that because of Christ, through faith in him alone, we can trust that everything that happens, everything that happens, is purposed by you to bring us great good, especially the good of even more of your nearness. Strengthen us with this, Lord, I pray. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.